So we have a bunch of guests here with us today. Y'all have shown up at maybe one of the worst possible times in this sermon series. I'm just, I'm shooting you straight. So what we do is we go through, uh, we go through a book of the Bible. I try to go through a book of the Bible every year. We're going through Romans. And so we have come to Romans chapter nine. Nobody understands this book, this particular chapter, because this particular chapter balances God's sovereignty and human responsibility, which none of us can thoroughly explain to our own satisfaction and our logical minds. And yet you're here today as I'm going to try to walk through this with our students and preach the text. So let me just say this. We believe the Bible. We believe all of the Bible is important. We don't skip over the hard stuff. We roll right through the hard stuff and do our best with it. And then if I mess it up, I send them to the Bible profs to go sort things out. It's all good. We have fun looking at the text because we value it, which means we believe that in the beginning, God created in six literal days, rested on the seventh, historic Adam and Eve who sinned, and that sin is our problem because we've inherited a sinful nature. God in the Old Testament told us there was a coming Messiah. That Messiah came, lived a sinless life, went to a cross, died in my place and for my sake on that cross, went to a grave, got up again, is right beside the Father now, sitting down and coming again in the future to create a new heaven and a new earth. And because we believe Jesus is alive, all of this is okay. We can wrestle with God's sovereignty and balance that with human responsibility and come to the end of it and say, you know what? I'm not that smart. There is a God that has infinite knowledge of every detail of every situation that happens all across everything. And there is a God that sits outside of time. So in my mind, I can only think in linear time. What happened yesterday, today, and tomorrow? What just happened, what's happening now, and what's gonna happen in the future? My mind is confined to put things in a linear time frame, whereas God is not. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So as we walk through this text and we get to things that we may not be able to fully understand or explain as we would like to, let's just remember, there's a God who knows it all, and he's a good God. And he's a faithful God, and we can trust him. Back in chapter 8, 831, what shall we say to these things? Paul starts asking these questions. He gives us a glorious passage. In that passage, he tells us that all things work to good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, meaning the eternal good. He works everything out for the good. He's in charge of all of it. He's sovereign. He tells us in that passage that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He lists all these different things. Now, if you were a, a Jewish person sitting and listening to this letter as it's being read, your thought process might go something like this. But Paul, if all things work out for the good of those who are zealous towards God and nothing could separate us from that love of God, why is it that all of the Jewish people haven't been saved? After all, Israel was God's chosen nation. He called them out. He adopted them. He promised them good things. Now, remember in the Old Testament, there's the covenant there of blessings and curses. And Israel didn't live up to his part. But if you're listening to this and you're hearing those promises of adoption, of a father who you can cry out to, my Abba father, my dad, and that's being given to the Gentiles and you're from, from Israel and you're a Jewish person and you're looking at this, you might say, hold up, Paul, what about us? What is the deal here? And Paul's done this enough in all of the synagogues to anticipate this question. So now today in chapter nine, we move to a new portion in our outline in Romans. Chapter nine through 11, yo, we've already done condemnation. We have already looked at righteousness 
And now we move to the outlook for Israel. Paul's gonna start answering the question, what about Israel? And he's gonna answer a series of questions about Israel in chapter nine, and then he's gonna move to an urgency to go tell in chapter 10, and then we're gonna talk about the future of Israel in chapter 11. Then we'll move into some practical application in 12 through 15. We'll slow down a little bit in 12 through 15, but today we're covering all of chapter nine and even the first few verses in chapter 10. So these questions arise. So what's my main idea to you, the takeaway? The questions are gonna be, has God forsaken Israel? Did God not keep up his word? God promised good things to them. Israel is now under Roman rule and they're wondering, is God somebody that we can trust? And so what I want your takeaway to be from this today is that God is faithful, we can trust him. So if you're writing notes, or maybe if you have your own questions, maybe if you're here wondering, where in the world am I gonna go to school next year? Maybe if you're wondering, where am I gonna get a job this summer or next year? Or should I change majors? Here's what I want you to take away from this text and as we walk through it, is that God is faithful and we can trust him. Here's the outline. It's a complicated outline, I apologize, but it's as simple as I could get it. We start off with Paul's concern and love for Israel. We're gonna see that in verses one through six. And then we're gonna come back and look at, has God's word failed? Or we might put this in our terminology of can we trust God? Is God unjust, or in our words, maybe, is God good? Why does God still find fault, or is God harsh? And then what shall we say then, which is straight out of the text, and then it comes back around, which is why I've included the first four verses of chapter 10 to Paul's concern and love for Israel. Now, because we have a lot of guests here and everybody may not have brought their Bible, all of your students, you got your Bible, you got your journals, you're ready to roll, but we're just gonna walk through this text. So we're gonna start off in chapter nine, and I'm gonna look at verses one through, one through five to start off here, but I wanna pray first. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, you know this text. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through Paul, you wrote it. So would you help us today to be able to see it clearly? Would you help the Spirit to give us insight into what we need to pick up from this text for our lives? Lord, this is a text that I've studied deeply, but I still don't know that I understand it fully. And so, Lord, would you guard my words not to say something that would be confusing to our students and our guests, but, Lord, would you help me just to disappear? Would you help your text to come alive? And by the power of your Spirit, would you make it real in our lives? Lord, we know that you are a good God and we can trust you. So help this text to reinforce that even in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 9. Three times, right here at the very beginning, Paul is gonna say the same thing. I am speaking the truth. Here it comes again. In Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. So not only did Paul say I'm not lying three times in a row, he appealed to Christ in one of those and to the Holy Spirit in another one. So this tells us something's coming here that Paul feels like he's gotta lay the groundwork to say, y'all, I'm really not kidding. I'm really serious about this. Now, what we would say if this were an English paper is that this is redundant and you need to get rid of two of those. Or if you're, if you're saying, I'm telling you the truth, we would say to you in speaking that that casts doubt on everything else you've said because why do you have to tell me you're telling the truth on this part, not everything else? But Paul is communicating to them with a repetition so that we know what's coming next is difficult. He says, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay, Paul, what's this about? For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Think back to Moses. Think back to Moses and Israel where he interceded and he said, God, no, these are, these are the people. Don't do away with them and start over. Lord, he stands in the gap for them. And what Paul is doing here is he's standing in the gap. Now, Paul can't sacrifice himself for them and redeem them. Nobody could do that but Jesus Christ, and Jesus has already done it. But what he's saying here is there's such a passion in his heart, such a concern over lost people, that he's saying to him, I, I would cut myself off. I would be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the fellow Israelites, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For they are Israelites, and to them belong all these good things. Now, first of all, I don't want to skip over this without saying, do you notice the passion for the lost, the love, the concern that we see here in Paul's writing? And all of us, as we go through this text, which ends up being a text that people argue and debate about over coffee, especially if you're a theology student. And some of the rest of you may tune up when they do that. That's okay, too. But don't miss the passion for the lost. Are you concerned about a world that doesn't know Christ that's dying? Are you concerned about people in Utah that may be zealous for a religion, but they don't know the one true God? There's mission trips you can go on if you are. Are you concerned about people in Boston or the Northeast that's bought into secular humanism or a secularism and they don't know about the one true God? Here we see that Paul expresses his concern. And then he talks about the good things. Israel's blessings. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption. Well, that should hearken us back to chapter eight because this is kind of why he's tying this in. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. Promises. This word appears over and over in this text. Because part of what Paul is saying to them is God has not forsaken his word. He has not forsaken his promises. Every promise he has made, he is keeping that promise because he is a sovereign God in control of all things and you can trust him just like we can trust him because we see that he's done exactly what he said he was gonna do all throughout history. To them belong the patriarchs. Yeah, we know those guys. And from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, if you, well, everybody, you should underline this verse, you should start this verse, but especially if you're a theology student because this is one of the few verses that actually links Christ to God directly and very clearly. There's argumentation over where the punctuation should go because your original Greek didn't have the punctuation, but most scholars have decided that this text says the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. That is a clear statement of Jesus' divinity. So now we move to the questions. This question doesn't have a question mark at the end, but it's a question. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. So I've asked this in the form of a question. So what's the question here? Has the word of God failed? Can we trust God? It's what's really being pointed out here. And so he says, it's not as if the word of God has failed. And now here's your key. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel's used twice right here in two different senses. So, not all who belong to Israel, meaning the nation Israel, are part of Israel, meaning the spiritual Israel. So not every person that came through Abraham and that was born 
fully an Israelite is part of the spiritual aspect of being a child of God. So God's word has not failed to save all of the Jewish people because he never intended to save all the Jewish people. So here in answering this question, Paul is gonna go through and give his argumentation. Verse seven, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Think Ishmael. He's generally not considered to be part of the people of God, but he's Abraham's offspring. Through Isaac is the one that said, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, those who are humanly descendants, those of the nation who are the children of God, but the children of promise, notice that word promise is there again, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise, notice it again, said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So here we see this. Does God keep his promises? Yes. All right, let's ask that again. Does God keep his promises? Yes. So Sarah, too old to have a child. Abraham, too old to have a child. And God says there's a promise and it's gonna come through that child. Not through ways to work around what God has promised, but trust God because his word is gonna come true. And that's the same message for us. Trust God because his word is gonna come true. And it says it's not through Ishmael. It's not through a different way. It's through Isaac. And it comes through Sarah. And this was the promise and God kept it. And so Paul here is saying God's word is true. It's not as though his word has failed. And then verse 10 he transitions his argument, adds another statement to it, and says, and not only so, but also. Okay, God's word has not failed. You look at Isaac, you look at how he was born. Now, second example of my pieces of evidence that God's word has not failed. Let's look at Rebecca. So Rebecca had conceived children by one man. So you could say, well, wait a second, because Isaac and Ishmael had two different mothers, and so that's different. It was Abraham, it was the same father, but Rebekah received them by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. These were twins, remember? Twins in the, in the womb. And though they were not yet born, they had done nothing good or bad. They had no actions in and of themselves. So this is not a foreknowledge that looks forward to see their actions and then proclaim something based on their actions. This is before they were even born. Nothing good or bad. Watch the repetition. In order that God's purpose of election might be continued, not because of works. Okay, now we're getting some stuff we don't like now. Wait a second. You mean there's nothing, there's nothing I can do to be the reason why I'm saved? It's not that I made a good decision or that I'm smart or that I'm funny or that I look good or that, no. God's election purposes, as it's talking about here, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, it's not of works, but it's because of him who calls. Now, do we trust God's word? She was told the older will serve the younger. Well, that's not the way it works. The oldest gets the birthright. The oldest gets the blessing. The oldest gets all the stuff. And yet, how did it work out in the Old Testament? Well, you know how it worked out with, with Jacob and Esau. He sold his birthright for some food because he was really hungry. Jacob stole the blessing. And then the Lord used Jacob's line, renamed Israel as he takes the Christ through and all of his people. God said this was gonna happen before they were born and then it happened. Can we trust God's word? Yes, you see what he's doing here, right? Can we trust God's word? Yes. Now, here's a statement that we don't like. It's harsh, 
I get it. People try to explain it away. I don't know what to do with it. Verse 13, it says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And if you're like me, you sit there and you go, Esau I've hated from the womb before he ever did anything, not based on works. I don't like that. So how can we explain that away? Well, there's a bunch of people that try. There are a whole bunch of commentators that seek to, to explain it away. It's quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3. So it's a national reference. It's not really talking about Jacob and Esau. It's talking about the Israelites and the Edomites. And so this is a national selection. It's not a personal selection. That's how some people go with this. Uh, Douglas Moo says that love means choose while hate means reject. Well, I can, I can like that, that love means choose and hate means reject because reject is softer than hate, but I don't know that that's what it says. Mounts says it's a Semitic idiom that heightens the comparison. Well, that's really intelligent, but I don't know that that's what it says. Luke 14, 26, discipleship involves hating one's own family so that you put Christ above the family. Does it really mean a hatred of your own family? Some have said that that's the way we understand this word. Esau despised his birthright. Esau sold it to Jacob. Esau became the Edomites. They were not part of the people of God. And so that's what is intended and communicated here is that God saw everything that Esau was gonna do and he didn't choose him. The problem with that is the text says this was announced before they were born, not based on works. So what you do with this particular verse often is gonna be influenced by your theological presuppositions and your systems that you're bringing in to the equation. What's important for the text though, can you trust God? Yes. Has his word failed? No. He's kept all of his promises. And so we move to the second question. The second question, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, he answers it really quickly. By no means. So is God unjust or is God good? So the answer to is God unjust is no. The answer to is God good obviously is yes. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. All right, what's happening here? So Esau, I've hated. I don't like that. I don't like the way that sounds. That doesn't fit with what I want God to be. And so Paul's response then is basically to say, God has always said he's gonna have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on and he's gonna have compassion on whoever he wants to have compassion on. And when we look at this and think about this, let's recognize that all of us are rebels against the God who created us. We have rebelled against him in sinful rebellion. And the fact that is so crazy is not that he rejected Esau. The fact that's so crazy is that he ever loved and accepted Jacob. Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the one that took a skinned animal's hair and skin and put it on himself to deceive his father who didn't have good eyesight so that he could steal the blessing. God took somebody that was that depraved, that vile, that much in rebellion against all that's good and right and holy, and he chose him and he used him and he brought Christ through his lineage. Are you kidding me? That's mercy, that's grace, that's compassion. And chances are, I hope, everyone in this room You've been called by God. You have repented of your sins. You put your faith in Christ. You are adopted into the family of God. And what I wanna say to you is the remarkable thing is not that God condemns those who reject him. The remarkable thing is that God extends mercy and grace to those of us who repent of our sins and put our faith in him. 
That's where we should look at an incredible, remarkable God. Here it says, as it continues in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not anything good you've done or I've done, but on God who has mercy. Oh, it gets deeper. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power. Power is gonna be repeated in this section and then again in the other. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And this is the repetition of what he just said. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Is God unjust? No, God has declared who he was to Moses. I'm gonna have compassion on who I'm gonna have compassion. I'll have mercy on whomever I wanna have mercy. And then he concludes that same argument with God's gonna do whatever God wants to do because God is God. Now this is where my sin, I'm just talking about me. I'm not talking about y'all. Y'all are probably more spiritual than I am. This is where part of my sinful rebellion pipes up because I really wanna think I really want to think that I did something that caused God to choose me. I really want to think that God looked forward and saw some good inside of this heart. And he said, yeah, that's one of mine. But this is not the middle school picking teams. This is God looking down saying there's nothing good in him. There is nothing good in in you. And God says, I'm still going to have mercy on you. And I'm still going to have compassion on you. And friends, I want to tell you, if you read this chapter and all you worry about is double predestination over the grace and mercy of a loving God and a lost world out there, you're missing the point. If you read this passage just so you can win a theological argument, the pridefulness of our heart and our own minds that we're going to explain an infinite God I'm gonna understand the actions of a God that has full love that I can't comprehend, that knows every detail infinitely. It's not possible. But I know this. This sinner did not deserve to have mercy and compassion and this God gave it to him. And you can't take that away. None of us deserve the good God that we have. So how dare us question that God? Pharaoh, what do we do with this? I don't have the answers. I don't know. Let me tell you this. Here's what you need to think through. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden it? People argue based off of your systematized theological positions. Whichever way you wanna argue it, you can find it. Here's how. Well, Exodus 4.21 predicted that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened by God. Passive voice is used in Exodus 7, 13, 14, and 22. It says Pharaoh hardened his own heart in 8, 15, 32, 9, 34, and 25. It says that God hardened his heart and his officials' hearts in Exodus 9, 12, 10, 1, 10, 20, 10, 27, 11, 10, 14, 4, 8, and 17. So you can say God prophesied that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh had no choice in the matter. You can say, no, Pharaoh hardened his heart first because it's 8.15. All those others were just talking about it was gonna happen. It's not till 9.12 that God has something to do with it. And so God never hardens anybody's heart unless they harden their own heart first. You see how both of those can fit into theological systems. Or we can say that God hardened his heart and he hardened his heart and we don't know how that works. 
But we know that God is sovereign and we know that humanity is responsible and we can't explain the details of it. So now that I have not answered that question, let's move on to the next question. (laughs) Verse 19. So then you're gonna say to me, what are you gonna say? Why does God still find fault? This is a valid question. Okay, Esau in the womb was hated, not chosen. Pharaoh was raised up so that God could have long-standing patience before he destroyed him to show the mercy that he gave to the Israelites in clearer detail because that, that vast black backdrop allowed the light of the gospel to shine even brighter. But if God raised up Pharaoh for that purpose, then who is Pharaoh to resist God's will and why does he still find fault with Pharaoh? This is a valid question. Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's my question on this. Is God harsh? The answer to that is no. Why does he still find fault? Because humans are responsible. We'll get more into that. Verse 20. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Oh, this reminds me of Job. The latter portion of Job, where he is quizzing Job and he says, where were you? When I hung the sun in place and put the earth in place and put the stars in place and told the waters, you can come this far and you can go no farther. Where were you, Job? And Job's response is, I cover my mouth. I I have nothing I can say. I don't know the details of these things. Where were you, old man, when I put all of mathematical formulas that you have discovered in place ahead of time that 80% of us in the room don't understand and don't care to understand, but the other 20% of you know that level of things that you discover and you think it's really cool? Set percentages off, 80, 20, I think, maybe 90, 10, I don't know, whatever. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, he's going to the potter, say to the molder, Why have you made me this way? Are we molded? Yeah, we were taken from the dust of the earth and God fashioned us and he blew the breath of life into us. He molded us just like a potter molds clay. Who are you to say what you're supposed to do with that? Why have you made me like this? Oh, don't we ask this question all the time? God, why have you made me like this? I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way I talk. I don't like my accent. I don't like that I'm not smart enough. I don't like this, that, the other. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, now notice this, has endured with much patience? What if God allowed Pharaoh to rise up and endured with patience the utter rebellion? of Pharaoh denying God miracle after miracle after miracle in order to show his power. And then it says here, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so time out. I don't know what to do with this, but I want you to be aware of it. So circle the word prepared and then circle the word prepared beforehand. Now I've got those words for you on the screen. I've got the original language. I've got definitions out of the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament. There's something going on here. I'm not sure I fully understand. When you look at that first word prepared, the vessels of wrath, that word prepared, 
to put in order, to complete, to prepare, is 13 times in the New Testament. It's in the passive here. It doesn't say that God prepared this vessel of wrath. It just says prepared. And it, it doesn't give as clear an indication as what happens on the next use of that word. And it's two different words. Now, in our language, you might think, oh, this is the exact same word, but it's not. Vessels of wrath prepared passively for destruction in order that he may make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. So God clearly has prepared beforehand the vessels of mercy. This word that you can see here in the New Testament with only references of the activity of God. The dictionary says this verse and says it's predestination to glory. Ephesians 2.10, which we're familiar with, that says we were prepared for works, good works, works of service. It's an active voice. I don't know what to do with that but I drop it in your laps and tell you to think through it. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So now here he's talking about this and he's gonna put a little disclaimer in here and he's gonna go back to Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of Hosea, but in Hosea, you know, Hosea married Gomer. Gomer was prostituted herself. And so as as he married her, the Lord told him to name the children weird names because it was prophesying that Israel wasn't faithful. And then Paul is using this here to talk about um, calling the Gentiles even. And so it says, those who are not my people, lo ami. So who would name your child not my people? Somebody who had a wife as a prostitute that slept with another guy and it really wasn't your child? I don't know. Not my people, I will call my people. So the Gentiles who were not his people, God's gonna call his people. And to her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, lo Ramah. Would you ever name your daughter not loved? If you would, we need to have a conversation. And you don't need to get married. Could you ever fathom Go marry a prostitute. No, because all of you are gonna marry equal believers so that you're equally yoked and you have great marriages. But God told him to. And then you're gonna name your kids, not my kid, and not loved. Hey, will you introduce me to your family? Yeah, this is my prostitute wife, and this is not my kid, and this is not loved. That's my family. <laughs> and Paul takes that, and he uses that to say the promises go to the Gentiles too. So Jewish people who are asking these questions, Israelites who are asking these questions, we've walked through some of your objections and here I wanna say to you, he's called them. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So how does this adoption thing work back in chapter eight where those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ are adopted and called the Abba Father? Well, they're gonna be called sons of the living God. And then he goes to another Old Testament reference in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, though national Israel will be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah a place that was utterly destroyed and that no longer existed. But it also harkens back to us, Lot and his daughters, because Abraham argued with God, God, there's gotta be at least 20. God, there's gotta be at least 15. God, there's gotta be at least 10. I mean, Lot's family is there. 
And then at the end of the day, it's Lot and his daughters. His wife looked back and turns into a pillar of salt and Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. And Isaiah says, if it weren't for the Lord, we would be like that. So then we come to our fourth question and I'll wrap this up. What shall we say then? Well, that's our question. We've walked through chapter nine. It's difficult to deal with Esau I've hated. It's difficult to deal with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. So what shall we say then? Well, Paul's point then is that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That it is a righteousness that is by faith. Look at this next verse. But that Israel, who was not predestined by God because they were predestined for wrath, didn't get a shot at it. Why didn't he say that? Because Paul is laying the groundwork here for chapter 10 where he's gonna tell us, go preach the gospel. Go share the gospel. Blessed are the feet of those who take the gospel. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you say to me, how does it fit that God predestines all of this and that he's responsible for salvation completely and yet he tells us to go share the gospel to places that are hard to get to with people that don't speak our language? Why do I need to go do that if God's already predestined some to heaven and some to hell? And Paul doesn't take away that missionary emphasis. He doesn't take away the fact that we need to go and that we need to share and blessed are the feet of those who carry the gospel. He says, in fact, but Israel, who pursued a law that would re- lead to right Righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because God didn't predestine them to do so. No, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice we cannot do away with human responsibility. I have no problem with you holding to God's sovereignty. In fact, every passage we come to that has God's sovereignty, we should preach and teach God's sovereignty at a high level. We should not be ashamed of the fact that God is sovereign and over all. That gives us great confidence that he will bring salvation to completion. But we also are ambassadors of Christ and we should plead with others as though Christ himself were pleading with them, be reconciled to God and human responsibility is still there. Your responsibility is still there. And when somebody rejects God, they reject God because of their human responsibility of rejecting God. So we go to chapter 10, because I don't have time to do any more of that. Brothers, my heart's desire, what is my heart's desire? Because here he's right back to his passion, his love, his concern for Israel. And my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Notice those words, and this is what makes this hard. Why are they not saved? They had a zeal for Christ, but they did not submit to God's righteousness. So if they didn't submit to God's righteousness, who's responsible for their damnation? For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. I wanna draw your your attention to this, and then I got a couple of points and we'll be done. All right. They had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Be careful that you don't have a zeal and a pride that actually becomes the biggest obstacle to you having authentic faith with Jesus Christ. Here's your application section. What shall we say then? Here's what we're gonna say. We should be burdened for the lost. I've already covered it. 
God was faithful in the past. He will be faithful to us in the future. That's our main idea. God is faithful. We can trust him. God is completely responsible for our salvation. As much as I wanna believe I had something to do with it, some small part, some little bit, I can't add a single thing to what God has already done on the cross. He has accomplished it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. And that's the way I need to view my life. And that brings a humility as we recognize we can do nothing good. We get no credit. Humanity is responsible for rejecting God. When humanity says, I reject you, I don't want anything to do with you, and God says, okay, have it your way. So if you're out there right now and you're saying, I'm gonna live the Christian life my way, I'm gonna have it my way, that's a dangerous thing, friends. We don't create a God of our own mind. We go to the God who has revealed himself because there is a God and he has spoken and we need to learn what he is saying to us. So how do we reconcile these two things of God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Here's a good quote from J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He's quoting here, talking about C.H. Spurgeon. He says, Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. Quote, I wouldn't try, he replied. Quote, I never reconcile friends, end quote. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of a cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. So in your theology, don't try to solve an infinite God who knows more and whose ways are higher and that we can't understand without having room for question marks. And if you have a question mark, that's not a bad thing. Because it reminds us that we, as finite beings, will never fully understand an infinite God. But never forget this. God is faithful. You can trust him. You are loved. Go in peace.